Wow, episode 134 here, No Guitar Is Safe, presented by Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. Guitar Player, play better, sound better, and what a guest. Jeff Berlin, incredible musician, composer, teacher who happens to choose the four-string electric bass as his mode of expression. I'm also thrilled to have him on the show because, well, he's a good friend. You know how it is when you tour with somebody. Sometimes you become brothers for life. You know what I'm saying? Me and Jeff, man, and Stu Ham and Billy Sheehan with drummer John Mater were B times three, and we went to Asia as well as all over the U.S., played a bunch of shows. So Jeff is a friend too, but he's also, man, I was the affordable guitar player. He's played with Alan Holdsworth, Steve Howe, and yes, Bill Bruford's band, and even Eddie Van Halen. You'll never believe what Van Halen said to him one night. He asked me to join Van Halen at one time. We'll get to that. And as far as this Holdsworth stuff, well, you know, the first time I ever heard Jeff Berlin and saw his name, I was a freshman in high school and I picked up this record called Road Games, Alan Holdsworth solo album. Probably the simplest Alan Holdsworth guitar head you'll ever hear on that song. But listen to the bass. Jeff Berlin is just owning it. I used to listen to it all the time to hear that bass line and those fills. Yes, Holdsworth, the late great, truly great guitar player. And I have to say, you know, I actually met him once. I'm going to play you a clip. But first, I love this part. So sweet. Love that bit. So anyway, I met Holdsworth for a minute or two. I pulled out my phone and asked him a question. And no one has ever heard this clip. I don't even know if I've listened to it all the way through. But here it is. It came after a clinic that we did with Alan Holdsworth at Musicians Institute, and he had mentioned how much he does not like the vanilla sort of diagonal across the top four strings major seven chord. This chord, you all know it, like here's a C major seven on the top four strings, stacked thirds. What is it about that one major seven voicing that you find so, what did you say? It's ugly. Why is it ugly? Oh, it's ugly. It's sickly. It's like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I can't find it. I'm trying to think now of something that was so ugly. Um, lemonade on a stick. I don't know. It's just ugly. It's a nasty chord. So what do you do? How do you get it? What, do, what would you rather do instead? You just took the major seven somewhere else, put it somewhere else in the chord, at the bottom or in the middle. Right. Anyway, but not on the top. Right. And that works for most chords, too. But I mean, every so many people play that. Piano players, everyone plays that chord. Wait, are they all playing an ugly chord? Yeah. So the yeah, world... I should leave it out. It's a, it's a yeah. relic. <laughs> all right. It needs to be left alone. <laughs> so would you just take that high note and then just move it down to like... Uh... Just put it somewhere else. You know, yeah. it's just, just it's sickly. It's a sickly chord. It's like a, I don't know. It's like it's like having like rice krispies and icicle. You know, like with cream on it, and then you put more cream on it, and then you put more cream on it, and then you put then you put mayonnaise on it. It's just yeah. <laughs> perfect. All right, thanks. 
I hope you caught all that because there was some background noise, but you hear that? That chord is a relic. It's mayonnaise. Take the seven and put it somewhere else as your first hope of not sounding like Rice Krispies on a stick with cream on top. Man, Miss Alan Holdsworth. Alan, of course, famously searching for that uncommon chord his whole life. Rest in peace. Jeff Berlin's got tons of solo records, too. Check out his tunes. Like, here's a hilarious title called Just a Bofidus. We're going to get into so much with Jeff Berlin today. Everything from that B-Times 3 tour, it was fun because, you know, at the end of the night, <laughs> they'd give me a bass as well. So there'd be four basses with John Mater on drums, and we'd close out the evening every night with Big Bottom by Spinal Tap. Four basses. <laughs> of course. I mean, what, what other song would you close out a bass tour with? And Jeff is going to get into, you know, his new solo album that's going to be coming out as a tribute to Jack Bruce, featuring some killer guitar players on there. And just about everything else, you know, teaching philosophy, personal growth, spiritual breakthroughs. We're going deep, as we always try to do on No Guitar Safe podcast. I play just a touch of guitar. It's funny, right when I do, it's a strap malfunction too, and my guitar almost hits the floor. Luckily, luckily my left hand is on the neck. You know how that is when the strap is bent over the button the wrong way, but you don't notice it. Comedy. And speaking of recording, you know, Jeff is not Mr. Home Studio Guy, you know? He has devoted his life to practicing the bass and playing it. I told him ahead of time that I needed him to record his bass and his voice into Pro Tools or something, but when we got to the phone call to our Zoom, he's like, oh, really? But we, so what we did was we went with Zoom and I unclicked some of the boxes so we can hear his voice super clearly and hear his bass super clearly, surprisingly, for Zoom. However, Somehow through his lapel mic, a few minutes in, we get a little bit of a, just a little bit of a slapback echo. Again, I blame the virus for this stuff, but I hope you're all healthy and well, and hope live music is returning, and that's a small little glitch, that little sound, but it sounds kind of cool. You'll get used to it. Always need to ask your forgiveness when there's a little tiny technical thing. It's always an adventure doing these podcasts where the guest plugs in and plays. Again, hit my YouTube channel for all kinds of guitar videos of guests that have been on this show and others that have yet to be on but nonetheless I have killer videos from and it's youtube.com slash Jude Gold one word that's me Jude Gold thank you so much for listening to No Guitar Is Safe thanks again to Guitar Player Magazine and I hope all of you keep it alive to your 95 let's zip over to Nashville where Jeff is now living oh yeah be sure to go to Jeff Berlin Music Group and check out his book bass mastery a new book that really is a perfect example of how he likes to teach music and bass in particular jeff berlin music group.com when i was a freshman in high school i think that's when i first discovered your playing and i asked you about this song once and you claim that you don't remember it but it's the title track to alan holdsworth road games and you completely own that groove you're just doing all these fills you're like you don't even remember this do you jeff uh no but uh which song wait wait, one more time and my strap just gave out oh this i think is uh it might be road games 
Yes, I do remember. I, I mean, I'm improvising on it now, but yeah, I took a little bit of liberties on that. And for people who, it sounds much better when you're playing it, let me say it, but I was playing it for a second. <laughs> you know when you do that, for anyone out there in audio land, the strap is folded the wrong way and it just gives out and that's hilarious. More yeah. entertainment for all of us that have, that have watched it happen. Do you? I mean, do you have to tell us about the late, great Alan Holdsworth? Um, a lot of guitar players, we feel there's great guitar players everywhere, and then there's one guitar player who's from another planet. Yes. Alan is from another planet. Alan is an example of, you know, people uh, banter the word genius around. Oh, he's a genius. I'm not so sure that the word applies to 90% of the people or more that we share. You know, oh, I heard him, but he's a genius. They said it about me. I'm not a genius. I, I'm a well-rehearsed guy, or as it were. Alan, I think, was a genius, and the, at least in the sense of his ability to be a savant in the instrument. He created something uh, due to vision. It wasn't something he, let's say, learned earlier from someone else. I think he listened to saxophone players, and that's what uh, caused him to do it. Um, Alan was a genius in that. I, I, I really think the word fits. He was stunning. I, I mean, I did look at transcriptions. I tried one and, and stopped because it wasn't, there wasn't a harmony there that, that would uplift me. So I didn't continue with the transcription. But... Some of the things he did was, I don't know what to say. It's un, un, unearthly. It's, it's absolutely unearthly. Did you learn anything from him or like any specific like things? Like, wow, I never thought about playing this groove that way or these harmonies that way or approaching melodies this way or anything like that? I would have to say I did. Um, the thing that, and, and I, I mean, I do this a lot on the bass. There's a thing that bass players tend to do. I don't know if you can see the bass. Let me, so... Bass players tend to play, let's say, like an E chord. They'll play like a one, three, seven. You know, I've heard like like this. What Alan taught me was, is I could play an E chord in in slightly for a bass player, anyways. You know, even here, this sort of sounds. sort of the spread sound that I do you know with my chorus I it, it rings out it's it chimes out and um, those are the things that I learned an E chord in just all kinds of ways even this I do strangest kind of things and they're all three or four not, sometimes four notes but three notes I have a four string bass and I can pick sort of odd notes and that's I would say a legacy of the brilliance of Alan's voicings because you know the pictures where he's like his hands stretched out to infinity <laughs> you know and he stretched out because he heard or experimented and found those voicings out there I, I tend to to imitate the approach but it's very specific I, I don't do it on most gigs or records or anything I don't think it's appropriate but uh, if I do it my own rec I'm, I'm doing Jack Bruce now my record Jack Bruce so there's a couple of things that are just a little, yeah, you know, <laughs> and uh, just because it entertains me. <laughs> a huge highlight of the B Times 3 show, and I'm not just saying this because you're the guest on today's episode here of No Guitar is Safe. 
I think anyone who saw the show, and it was a pretty deep show, three hours long, would be when you took the stage all by yourself, or maybe John was playing brushes on the drum, I can't remember, and you would do Tears in Heaven. Mm-hmm. And I think it's incredible that, first of all, you're, you seem to straddle the sound. Like you get, some people might almost think you have a fretless going on mm. when you don't play fretless, but you're able yeah. to tap into that magic of that melodicism and that, that mid range. And, and people, I think were loving the way it would sound through a big PA system too. the bass with the full frequency range coming through a PA in a nice big room. That was beautiful. And then you're doing so many harmonies and chords and the group. Can you play a little bit of that right now? I know it's one of your, it's been a while. And you get like the perfect stereoization through like a stereo chorus pedal. Maybe what do you use? Yeah, an EBS. It's my favorite uh, chorus pedal to date. I, a stunning sound because I was in Holland. I'm country dropping here. I was in Holland and uh, I was doing a, a clinic tour and uh, my pedal gave out the one that I was using originally. So the store owner kindly said, well, here's three or four, go play around and pick one. And when, as soon as I plugged into the EBS, it was the first pedal that didn't change the tone of the bass, but the, it was this tone, but suddenly it was, you know, and I was, I was knocked out. I was knocked out. So I, I'm firm, a uh, firm, uh, EBS user through my two little Mark bass, Jeff Berlin's and, uh, my, my little bass here. And it's, it's just great. Um, I guess those are like one, each one's like a 15 inch speaker or something like that. Or I can't remember. It is, um, I have a little bit of a, a, a philosophy of, of bass playing as an artist, not as a sideman, because as a sideman, I'm, I'm most happy to do what I'm asked to do. I like that because it includes things that I wouldn't do on my own. But as an artist, solo guy or a guy with a voice, something I pursue, wherever the popular trend in basses and amplifiers and approaches go, I tend to go the other way. So it was a time when fretless happened. I played fretless for a minute, but then I quit and I went back to frets. So when people were really into fretless, I wasn't. And then people were into tweeters. I'm not. My Mark Bass, I, it was a tweeter amp. When I very first got with Mark Bass, I said, would you remove the tweeter? People kind of like t- tens. I'm not. I'm into fifteens. Uh, people are into active basses. I'm not. I prefer passive. People are into five and six string. I'm not. I'm into four. And it tended at different alloy strings. I stick with nickel. Uh, active pickups, I passive. I think I said that. So what happened was is when things became a, a trend and I went the other way, I was forced to create something out of nothing because the things that were popular in, in the sound uh, spectrum and the playing spectrum since I wasn't going there, I had to create something. And that to me was a great source of new and original uh, approaches to bass playing. 
Yeah, and you certainly don't lack any frequencies. It's like the perfect match. Ah, thanks, Jude. Jeff Berlin, man, it's so good to see you. I don't think I've seen you since some NAM show or something where we last played or almost played. Well, I mean, you know, of course, that uh, the really the outstanding uh, moments between us, of course, was our playing together. And uh, I, I remember it absolutely distinctly amongst all the gigs, let's say, or time, you know, on, on, on different playing and everything. Those particular trio things that you and I and uh, John Mader did were absolutely slamming, buddy. Oh, man, so what an honor to to have you say that. And yeah, of course, you're talking about, yeah, that's part of the B times three tour. And times three. And, um, Stuart Ham, of course, had a set and right. Ian would close the night. And I must admit, you know, I was a little nervous because for me, it was like fly out to Milwaukee for the first gig know that you are, you're, you know, a, a fairly opinionated guy <laughs> and know that I'm not really a true jazz player, although I do like to bounce around to a different styles and like, you know, it's a little intimidating to meet Jeff Berlin and you are such a sweetheart. We were all best friends by the end of the first night. We went to that German restaurant in Milwaukee, Mater's as it coincidentally was called. Coincidentally called. Well, he, mentioning uh, opinionated me, uh, I certainly will focus in on the elements of, of base education and feel strongly about things, won't apologize for having a wish that everybody is taught well and properly, but in everything else, I'm just, uh, what was that line out of the birdcage? I'm just the guy. I you know, I, I don't I don't have strong opinions about anything that I stand by oh, yeah. in any way because people are different and have, a, you know, different philosophies and stuff. But certainly in, in the area of being taught bass, I'm very uncompromising about it because it came out of classical training. It, it's proven to work. So true. I'm very opinionated about that. And that's just the first word that came to my mind. But, you know. Yeah, there was just that little factor, and it was just such a wonderful thing to meet how you could be so passionate about so many things, but also just a big teddy bear to hang out. <laughs> you know, John, John Mater always says you're a sweetheart. You know, that's what people who don't know you might not all know about you, man. Like, we had so much fun on that tour. And, sure. like, I mean, sure, there was definitely some uh, long drives and long van rides and, and, and sinister hotel rooms. <laughs> crack me up every night. Okay, like, one night, tell me if you remember this joke. All right. You're up there playing your set, and you're like, man, I'm really digging these, these rock guys, Stu and Billy Sheehan. I think I'm starting to learn how to play rock. And then you play like Smoke on the Water. Dun, 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 dun. And then all of a sudden, do you, do you remember that bit? Can you do it? No. What, what happened? So you're playing, you're like, check it out, guys. The whole audience is there. You're like, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm playing rock. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 all that stuff. <laughs> you start going walking down. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, boy, I better go back and start practicing some more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. There were so many good times on that, that tour. Yes, I agree. And I became more convinced than ever than I already was that bass players just have a really good sense of humor in general and kind of know 
It takes a certain personality to be a bass player and work with all these other crazy musicians and adapt. Do you feel that's true or? Oh, gosh. Uh, uh, there's so many guys that are wacko, funny, humorous, joyful people that aren't bass players. I, I, I've always had it. I've sort of been wired for it. I was talking with my father the other day, who is 95 years old, and I said, you know, certainly when I was growing up, I didn't behave as other children behaved. I went off to the left or went off to the right, and it was just a, a mental element. I think that it went, in a sense, with the Mel Brooks's and the Jerry Lewis's and, the, and all the kind of strange, funny humorists. I have that, you know. But after a long therapy, it sort of quieted down. But I do have it. If I get, you know, a, you know, one or two pieces of rum cake in me and I get just a little bit high, I, I, I mean, I can go off and, and kind of go, why, lady, you know. Uh, I would say that a lot of musicians have a, a really wonderful, wacky sense about them. It's true. You kind of have to have a sense of humor to s keep this crazy career going. But yes. <laughs> now, to, I got to switch gears entirely. Let's switch. Speaking of self-taught, I know you played with one of the greatest greats of our lifetimes in his realm who passed away on October 6th, Mr. Eddie Van Halen. Correct. Would you like to tell us a couple stories about playing with him? I will. Um, when I met Eddie, I didn't know who he was. This was in 1978 or nine. And this fella came up and he looked like a musician. He says, hi, I'm Eddie Van Halen. I said, hi, how do you do? Are you a musician? And his face contorted. And sometime afterward, and he, he kind of walked off. And I thought, did I say something? I, I, I remember feeling something happened here, but I didn't know what. And sometime later, I fig found out that, oh, it was this guy that came over and said hello. Because I had heard him on rec. I said, this guy's incredible. And somehow I, he was at a gig, and I don't know how it happened, but I got a backstage phone number, and he picked up the phone. And I said, you know, I owe you an apology. You're, you're a, you know, you was young already, but I said, you're already a legend. You're, you're an astonishing guitarist. I just wasn't into that music. I didn't know what you did. And I saw your face, and I want to apologize. I didn't mean anything by that. Oh, don't worry. Okay, I th thank you for that. He said that, uh, well, I won't go into what someone else said to him. Someone else snidely gave him a shot, one, uh, uh, a guy. And my thing that followed was like a double whammy. And I felt terrible. So we met at a parking lot somewhere. He invited me up to his house, and we became very good friends. And we jammed all, a lot. And he asked me to join Van Halen at one time, which really wasn't a good idea. One, because I got to be honest, Michael Anthony is perfect, was perfect 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 for that gig he's a team player he's a great rock bass player he's a phenomenal singer much better than i and if you look at the the pictures and the camaraderie and and that sort of enthusiasm there was sort of a kind of a punk vibe you know and that wasn't my personality back then whereas now okay so and i couldn't join him in said no or or it came to be that it didn't happen and uh and we lost touch but i honestly will say he was rock royalty let me tell you something else his brother 
is an MF rock drummer. I've been a fan of Alex Van Halen's for decades. And one day I'm going to play with this young man because he is phenomenal. And so is Michael Anthony. Yeah, they swing. Definitely, like, for me, when I hear uh, Girl Gone Bad, it, I don't know if you know that one, but it was, like, kind of like the height of their game. I, I, don't, I don't know. It's just they're swinging. Mm-hmm. Definitely a little bit of a Holdsworth influence, I would say. It's swinging. They're locked. There's, like you said, they're playing with time a little bit and, like, you know, floating, mm-hmm. flying. They, they've achieved liftoff. Mm-hmm. I agree. That was my Eddie story. It was a lovely man. Played with him too. I, I know that at least at MI, I think you played a concert. We played there. We also played at the Roxy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we played one other place too. And then, uh, you know. Well, he helped put Holdsworth, you know, your part. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Hooked him up with Ted Templeman, the great Van Halen producer and producer of many other bands. Did you work with Ted at all? Well, I would say I did in the sense that. Uh, of Alan's record. I mean, I met Ted. Nothing else happened. They actually gave me money for a demo. Uh, uh, you know, they gave me a, a budget and I did a demo. And it was, I didn't play bass on it as much as I wrote compositionally. So they didn't take my music. Joe Fraser era, or when was that? Joe Fraser was with, with, with Bill Bruford. That was... 70s, late 70s. Was Fusion, like, busy bass, you know, a lot of around that time. I know. I remember you wouldn't play that song with us. And in, in <laughs> I mean, people would come up to you every night. Joe Fraser. I'll do it now if I go on the road, but I, I wanted to sever, you know, I had a lot of good music, I felt, interesting stuff that that the three of us in, in, in engaged in, and uh, I didn't want to do that in this, in our little, you know, uh, band conf- confines, I, I didn't feel like doing it. But, but on the other hand, you did feel like doing Big Bottom at the end. So. <laughs> Stu made me do that. It was funny though. I remember the first night you were like, because that was his idea for like, do like one song with the three of you guys and then like have the all out, you know, <laughs> extravaganza comedy jam at the end. Big bottom, spinal tap, three bass players, and they gave me a bass. So, I remember that. <laughs> one night, Victor Wooten sat in with us in New York and we had five basses. I have a photo. I have proof of this. Pictures and it did happen, folks. But I remember... Even up to the very first night, I think in Milwaukee or something, you're like, I'm not doing that big bottom thing. And, and God bless you. Like, so you came around and you did it. Sure, I would. I, again, there's a. There's... Not only that, but you sang one of the funniest lines every night. Uh, what good. was it? I don't recall. Ink torpedo. Oh, uh, say it again. How did. You know what? We don't, it's a torpedo line. I want to show you my torpedo. I don't remember it. I'm gonna sink her with my pink torpedo. Oh, I'm gonna sink. Is that what I sang? Yeah, on a the band would break. Which oh, how funny! I just found it, the comedy. 
to me, the comedy was how steadfast you were not even going to play the song to going to having your own vocal break with those silly. <laughs> if it made people happy, it's absolutely fine. So, and there was a one, another wonderful moment that, that there's a photo of is when we played another New York thing, bass player magazine um, was involved and uh, it was you, Stanley, Marcus, and Stu, of course, and Billy. And you guys all have four up, four fingers up, because you're all four strings. Oh, because we're all four string bass players. That's right. You get the power of the four string. Like, you don't necessarily need to have. I adore these guys as bass players. I, I genuinely do. They're gentlemen, they're wonderful men, wonderful people, and they're all bass legends, all of them. Yeah. So tell me, how are you in, like, you're, you, to me, when I think of some of my favorite New Yorker friends, I think of you, like, to me, you're like a quintessential New Yorker. Of course, the New Yorkers move all around. Yeah. You're born in Queens. Right. All those voices down when you're all fired up. And then, then of course, you're in Florida, but now you've busted a move to Nashville. I did. In there are a few years. Uh, what, what's your impressions? I mean, it seems like a big change for my, my New York buddy. Well, it is, and uh, I, I'll tell you, people here are wonderful. I'm not, I'm, I'm not that actually by how kind they are. I mean, New York, you know, get the hell, get the frick out of my way, you know what I mean? And uh, what's that joke of where the tourist is and uh, looking, uh, got lost, and he says to the guy walking down the street, he goes, "Excuse me, sir, can you uh, tell me which way uh, Times Square is, or shall I just go fuck myself?" And you don't find this here. Classic. You do not find the people here are, are, are wonderful. I'm here working with my business partner, John McCracken. He's producing my Jack Bruce record, which, by the way, is going to be an epic work. I, I cannot tell you how happy I am about how this is coming out. Um, uh, we've done released books. We've done uh, lesson packages together. We are planning, as soon as uh, Jack is winding up, I have a, a, a very unique record that I'm planning. Actually, never, I don't think it's ever been done, I, and I'll talk about it later. But it is musically something absolutely never been done. It has about them apples. The, the Jack and, uh, but it's such an odd, interesting music that it may not be for everybody. But the manner that we're going to play and record is, is just never been done, I don't think. So well, you got to uh, get a hint as to what... Huh? Got to give us a hint to why it's so different the way it's recorded in Blake. Well, that kind of gives away the good stuff. I'll well, just use this as a tease. Really. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> the tease pose. There he was, folks. Yeah. Um, and there must be some guitar players on this record. There are. Alex Lifeson is on it. Uh, Steve Lukather is going to play. Um, Scott Henderson recorded a, a, a solo. Um, there's a couple of other guys. I'll tell you who I'm really angry with is is uh, Brian May because I sent him a, a song which was perfect for him. And he says, ah, I love the song. It's incredible. And the bass, because I have a very good bass solo on it, unique tone. He says, but I can't do anything to improve the song, so I have to say no. And I thought, but I didn't ask you to improve it. I asked you to join it. Yeah. And I'm so, I mean, John tells me I got to get over it, but I said, come on, man, this is, come on, 16 lousy, okay. 
all of the, yeah, well, you know, superstars are in another realm. They are, they're like, there's a, you know, it, it's not, a, it's, yeah, you're right. And it's, and it's not meant as a bad thing, but when one is given entitlement and, and, and given leeway in everything and in all things, it's a beautiful area. We've had a little bit when we're on the road, you know, you know, we treat it special. So, so in that space, that headspace, he didn't get what I asked him and the solo that I wanted was perfect for him. But uh, there, you know, and he said, uh, well, he couldn't improve. I didn't want you to improve. I wanted you to join. I wanted you to play. Um, something less good so he could improve it. Well, he would have improved it. I know. He would have improved it. So I, I moved on, and there's another, you know, A-list, beautiful superstar guy. And uh, that? I'll let you know after it's finished recording. Fair enough. This is my Brian May kind of story. Makes me mad. I gotta ask follow-up questions. Oh, there he is. Cheers, Joe Fraser. Boxing moves. Such a zets. I'll give him a such a hit. Huh? I don't know if that was Runaway Train or, or just something in the vein of it, but in the vein of it, yeah. tricky the uh, the head. I got the head co correct, like maybe two out of our 60 gigs. All I mean, we even went to Asia and stuff. But you would always adjust. Like if I would start the second half of the head, like, you know, a quarter note off or whatever, you, you were right there with me, man. I was in such good hands playing that. <laughs> You're such a sweet man. It's true. Well, you're back at you and we, we were swinging like uh, for me like i just remember like energy took over our first show like you know the first time i ever really had fun playing bebop i think was when we played groovin high which is a dizzy oh, I, I remember that and we're just on stage and, like, and we're swinging and john's the energy and it's the energy of the room is pushing us that's what we musicians love is when the energy crowd in the room and the circumstances and the stakes are high uh, Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, were we in Japan at all? Taipei. We were in Taipei. Taipei. Yeah, yeah. Is that the one where where uh, we landed and it took us? The airport was seven miles from the hotel, but it took us three hours to get to the. Uh, no, I don't think that was that that band. I remember a lot of mopeds. <laughs> before I love it out there. Um, uh, before I, I do too. I love Asia. I love Asia. I've been great friends with uh, Tina Shao, who interviewed us and did that great thing. Mostly you guys, but she was nice enough to interview me and John as well. They put out those cool magazines. Like it's all embossed, like a Earth, Wind, and Fire cover from like 1978 or something. <laughs> how, how, how? Let me ask you a question. How's things going with the Jefferson Jefferson Starship? How's your gig going? I'm so thankful. It's just been incredible. You know, like every year since I joined in 2012 has been bigger than the year before it. Everything's 
we released an album in the summer of 2020 during lockdown. We put out a seven song thing called Mother of the Sun and we play all over that. We played in New Zealand, four festival shows with Toto, you know, like these are big rock crowds, you know, we're getting some, we, we play other places too, everything, casinos, a lot of good stuff, videos, all we're, we're working in lockdown and we got a beautiful Europe tour in October if it happens like. I'm incredibly thankful. You should try out this rock stuff, man. I'm telling you. I love rock and, and uh, the, uh, the, uh, I've actually sort of mostly turned a little bit away from jazz and, and have gotten far more interested in rock and the energy of it. I, I'm very excited by, uh, I've, I've gone back to it. I, I, you know, for, for about 25 years, I was a jazz guy period, but I actually, uh, jumped ship a little bit. Wow. That's a whole other hour right there. Just real quick, what did you think of Robert Trujillo? You know, he spent a huge chunk of money to make this Jocko documentary. I can't imagine you didn't see it. Did you? Like I, it? I saw it. I indeed, I saw it. Sure. Thing, right? Or what? You? What was your impressions? Out you? You obviously studied the guy and maybe met him. I, I don't know or knew him. But what? what I was, knew him a little bit. And funny, we 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 share a great number of the same friends but ironically our past sort of did this and did this and we i think we played together one afternoon one place and uh, we talked the day before and well i mean i would be reviewing what everybody on the planet thinks about jocko he's easily the greatest visionary bass visionary that ever came along on the electric bass there's just no doubt about it uh, that's what I think uh, where the word genius applies. Yeah, but you're speaking that, very generally about him. What specifically for you or something that- About Jocko? It hits you in the spinal column. Like what, what, what is it about Jocko? Or even when you ref we watch that movie and you reflect on his life or anything. Well, I feel sorry about his descent into, the, into mental difficulty. Um, the thing about him, which I think is so remarkable, is that almost from the get-go, you knew that you were looking at something unique and special. And I think that's what everybody was sort of blown away by. It wasn't even quite maybe the bass playing, but the fact that it was happening. It was what in the mindset of this person came up with this. So if I had anything to say, I don't know. I would say that the bass tone on his first solo record, for me, was uh, the best bass tone that uh, I'd heard. I, I heard them on the weather reports and they sound really great. But I would say that there's something about the almost punching element of his bass tone. Those notes were, you know, uh, almost physical. You got a song title for us if someone wanted to look that up? Okay. Um, there's a song called Kuru mm -hmm. where he plays an ostinato. I'm, So that has a, a, a wonderful 
almost a, a almost a physically concussive little hit on each note. It's it's a remarkable thing that uh, uh, who was the producer, uh, the drummer from uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Can't remember his name either. It's it's sort of a senior senior citizen moment. So, anyways, the producing on that was wonderful. So. Yeah, but you did that in a big studio in New York, I guess, right? And uh... I think they recorded in New York, and they had every great guest star, every jazz star on planet. Herbie played better on that record than almost any record I ever heard him on. And that's just, I think it's just under his own name, right? Jaco Pistorius. Bobby Columbi. His name, the name of the producer was Bobby Columbi. Nice. It was just Jaco Pistorius. Self-titled album. Uh-huh. It's a stunning record. I mean, it's just a stunning record. His thing, it was an interesting thing that people thought he improvised his solos. He rarely did. He didn't improvise the solos on that record. Donnelly is not an improvised solo. It's a composed solo, which is a testimony to his brilliant composition skills, you know. But uh, that solo is a written-out solo. It, uh, and the solo on, uh, what was it, used to be a cha-cha, is a written-out solo. He would write out solos, practice, write them out, and then learn them. And, but on, standing on that compositional element and the performance element, it's stunning. It's incredible. Now, one of my, I remember, maybe you can give us a little demonstration of this. This is a musical thing. We're backstage at a club in Chicago, and I think it was called Martyrs. There's upstairs, nice green. Oh, sure. Martyrs. I'm like, what are you doing, Jeff? It's like, you know. 45 minutes before the show and you got like a book of music out and you're practicing and like these are trombone etudes oh yeah can you show us a little bit of what those kind of things sound like on the bass or and and why do you practice those well i uh originally i practiced them because there's very little in the bass literature that i feel has merit for practice bass players tend to aim toward bach uh, and basically aimed toward Bach because it's 16th note type of music. And that seems to be the attraction. Every bass player on the planet will play. What is that? The, the G major cello, cello. I don't remember the name, but the, the, there's the confinement for bass players. So I went into trombone music. I discovered it back in about, I'd say, 72 or 73 when I was a student at Berkeley. And this was a time when Berkeley was entirely focused on the teaching of academic music. It didn't teach uh, other programs except to get people to practice their instrument. And even the teacher said, I don't have anything for you because I just come out of a 10-year uh, violin background. So I went, I went down to the bookstore and they had a book trombone and let me check it out. And it was lines in approach note lines I haven't practiced that in a long time this is that of the trombone book and then they did above and below and it goes on and on and on and in different keys and the music wasn't it was entirely based in academic regard of harmony approaches to chord tones and it was it was mind changing because it, it opened up the possibility to ascend and descend specifically for musical reasons i i 
personally don't, nah, I don't really believe except for preparing for the gig, I don't see practicing as related to gigs because it isn't. So it just got me to improve as a bass player to where whatever the gig required, if I can get through, let's say, trombone music and other varieties of exercises and music in different ways, gigs were a piece of cake. And it was sort of a, a I would say, a, oh, wait, there's a word for it. It's a, it's a kind of a, oh, gosh, what's the word? It's going to, it's right on the tip of my tongue. It's a, the benefits were not meant to be for the gig. It was aside from the practicing. There's a word and I can't think of it. And uh, so that's why I did it. And it was so funny backstage. I'll never forget this. You're, I'm like, you're, man, we're about to go on stage in like 32 minutes. Because we were always the first. Like, well, me and John play with everyone and all three of you guys. And of course, we'd come out later. Yeah. With all three of you joining me and John. And but so you're about to go. And you're like, well, of course, I'm practicing. These people paid money. Would you want a heart surgeon you hadn't practiced? Or you're like, you're like, listen, I know how a scalpel works. I'll take out your spleen right now for you and save you 10 grand. Or do you want somebody who's practiced? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you an interesting thing. Um, our hang together was, I would call it pre-therapy. After we had toured, I think I was turning 60 years old then or coming up on it. And I had a great emotional difficulty. It caused great, sincere, severe awful, horrific pain to where I couldn't extricate myself out of it. So to make a long story short, I went through, I went through nine months of agony and I was in therapy the whole time and then went till for three years in total. So the reason I say that is uh, the kind of manner that I had projected back then, the things I said, it's just not in me to do now because I knew that I was an, uh, a hurt person and I had reason to heal and the therapy was so profoundly successful that for the most part I don't see the world like I used to I don't think like I used to every day the sun is is up people are are beautiful life is beautiful COVID is a drag but there's something to be found in the downtime that's beautiful uh, I am as grateful as can be for that uh, period of therapy and the difficulty that it, 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 uh, I experienced. But the only reason I say it is because I wouldn't say now people deserve uh, the best. I better practice. I, I, I wouldn't put it in those terms because it sounds a little bit uh, unreasonable, but I, I'm, I own what I've said in the past. I thought it was cool. I also, mm -hmm. well, I've, I've stolen your line. I love it. It's like, well, you, you'll be like, <laughs> someone come up to you or something, you'll be like, oh, I'm sorry, did I say that back then in 1982? Oh, that was pre-therapy. So sorry. It's like instant, like a hall pass, kind of. But It's uh, certainly uh, something I like to put out publicly. I love how comfortable you are with just being so real in an age when everyone is so worried about, you know, having a strong, passionate stance on, on anything yeah i uh i have a strong passionate stance in, in base education um but nothing else and the reason base education is because i don't see base educators doing or teaching how all other instruments are taught see i came out of violin and 
the entirety, the entirety of the classical instrument educational system is taught the same way. It's rarely deviates to this special way to teach someone how to play an oboe versus that guy's special way to learn how to play an oboe. You don't see those elements, but electric bass never really had a, had a system that was defining how to teach it. And so bass educators with really with no, no way to sort of, unless you've had the background I had in violin, they, uh, bass educators and schools would invent systems and classes and styles and techniques pretty much to fill a, a kind of a business need. Kids said, I want to learn this. Well, let me teach it to you. And that's where I sort of put uh, a, a firm uh, and public, I would say, uh, distance between myself and that and saying, no, it's, this is not how you learn how to play. This, you know, there's a difference between self-taught which is free and absolutely without limits. You can slap and tap and, and, and take from here and take from there. There's no limits. But if I give Jude Golder, you give me a check, the rules change. There has to be a specific core regard of what to play in order to become a better bass player. That's why uh, I basically think the whole system is flawed as much as that it irritates and probably alienates me from teachers. I can't find a way in with people when I believe that the system is causing harm to younger musicians that don't know the difference, that they're really not getting better for the most part in what they're playing. And so, uh, yes, I, I'm certainly uh, considered provocative. And all, all anyone has to do is show me where I may be flawed in, the, in that view. And I, I would regard it and change my views if someone showed me that the learning of music or the teaching of music on its own is a flawed concept. But all other instruments works this way. So I don't know why bass educators in schools have decided to expand on a narrow principle. So... What would you, what should, can you show us some of the things that you would show a young or a, a student joining your school who's played at gigs and bands, whatever? Where well, the, the, the core thing is reading, and the reading is because it takes our vision of music completely out of the equation. So I would really emphasize the reading, like the, uh, I wrote a beginner bass book that I felt was necessary to fill that gap because I don't think there was a good, a comprehensive program for electric bass players. And it starts real simple. It starts G-A-B. Written notes, written notes. How boring. And goes on in that, then I do D-E-F. Written. A, B, C, E, F, G. And they're reading and now have to regard pitch with neck. If you extend the experience, I have etudes in the book that are... What this does is it presents music that we as students, or anyone as a student, hasn't thought of. You have to rise up to the need of the written note. That is by far the most direct way to learn how to play a bass. It has nothing to do with gigs and... Oh, the word I was looking for is that it's incidental. 
the the working element the reason you're with the jefferson starship is not because let's say you practice guitar a certain way as a as as a younger guitarist it's an incidental and a, a sign of the success of your guitar uh, uh, pr uh, pr the the, pre the uh, it's a sign of your guitar uh, experience before you got with the band is what I guess I'm saying the predecessor to your success your being with the starship is an incidental situation you might not have ever been with them but you'd still be the same guitarist so your success as a guitarist everyone's success is sort of a coincidence it could happen it could not happen but at the same time if it didn't happen you'd you would always still be qualified to be with them and you can't predict what's going to happen. You can't predict what's going to happen. But th there's two things. One, you prepare for what might. And two, you do it because you love music. Yeah. I mean, I think some of the great, greatest things happen when someone who gets thrown into something that they wouldn't normally do. Mm -hmm. That happened with me with Yes. Tell us about that. Oh, I got a call Sunday night. Uh, Tony Levin was playing bass with them. Uh, he had eaten something and gotten sick. So instead of the canceling the tour, my name came up. They called me. Would you play? I said, I'd be honored. They gave me the set list on Sunday night. Thursday, I was on stage and we were touring together. Yeah. And it was a throwing in thing. And how did, And the reason I got a, 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 could do the gig so quickly is because for years I did transcriptions of Keith Jarrett and Sonny Rollins and Sonny Stitt and Gary Burton. And, and all these guys, Bill Evans, I wrote out by using my ear uh, so that I would become a better musician so that when I, the Yes gig came up, I wrote those charts out in a day and a half. I wrote a two and a half hour Yes show out in two days. Did you read the charts on stage with the band? Yes, I had to because I didn't know all those songs. I knew close to the edge. I had to review it in my mind. I, but uh, what were you saying, uh, Jude? They give you like some badass cool music stand that looked like it was from, you know, the Lord of, Lord of the Rings or something. No, they gave me three music stands that came right out of Manhattan School of Music, I suppose. I don't know. Where, whatever, you know, uh, UCLA Music Department. I took three music stands, lined them up side by side, put the music on it. All right. We got to talk about some of these guitarists. Uh, that was obviously the Steve Howe era, right? With, uh, oh, yeah. Tell us about working with Steve. A lovely man. He was he was a vegan back then, and I, I, he was the first vegan I ever heard of. I never what's a vegan? I didn't know what a vegan was. I thought it was a guy who was the brother of the guy on The Walking Dead, and, you know. So, Somebody. oh, that's that was an improv. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah. I mean, he was a lovely guitarist. Obviously, uh, uh, one of the great and unique. Check him out. He wasn't a, a, a blues bender of of guitar. His thing was. Totally different. Totally worked with Yes. Steve was a, a wonderful, wonderful cat. Wonderful guitarist. And definitely some angular kind of stuff. I don't even mm -hmm. reads the way you read music. I don't even know. But. I don't know either. I, I, know, I know Rick Wakeman reads because I'd written out a chart and I walk, walked up and I said, well, is this the thing? Because you're playing this and I wrote this. And he goes, oh, yeah, well, okay, I'll change that to this and because i'd written it out fr from the record and he was on the road and had you know evolved a little bit so he's the only guy i think that actually read bill bill bruford reads but not like rick wakeman does i saw one of the wonderful clinics i saw was you and steve bailey like 
the two of you together could draw a crowd, but the two of you, I mean, the two of you individually, but the two of you together debating, playing back and forth with each other, then you're like, give me your bass. I'll show, I'll play fretless right now. <laughs> kind of like, like it was a quite a spectacle and it was riveting, but I can't remember what you guys were debating. Um, it was a long time ago. And again, it was a, a time where I debated because I had to win. I wanted to win. And that's not a formula for comfortable and reasonable debate. And the debate, apparently, and he, he may uh, put it in another way, I was debating that the need of all students, not, not self-taught guys, but being taught, is entirely based in, in the teaching of music only. And he, I think, went another way and said, no, it isn't about music only. It's about all other things. And that was the gist, I think, of our debates back then. Um, if I met with, with him again, he or, or Victor Wu Ten or whomever else might have issue with the views that I have, I would not do it where I would debate them. I would discuss with them uh, because I'm not here to win or, you know, that, that those days are just gone, thank goodness. But I have a strong vision and be I believe I have enough the factual documentation to present at least a reasonable uh, explanation for the black and white principles of learning. And it, you can go right to, to, to getting a license, getting a car license. You know, there is no, this person teaches auto driving differently than that. And this person has a, a whole sort of unique way. It's, it's pertaining to the laws of the road and the rules of driving. And that's the and since one pays for driving lessons, you better get to to a specific uh, source of it. Base uh, education now in in the in the big schools has added styles. Sorry, I won't go long into this, uh, but that's what happened. Uh, we did this, and I could not find, and frankly, don't want to find a way back to associate with base teachers that, in my opinion, are including educational principles that are not good for people. I actually feel, and I won't use names, but I actually feel a couple of guys who are the most important base teachers anywhere have the greatest responsibility to be as specific and as correct in the manner that they influence uh, base players worldwide. And in my opinion, uh, these two unnamed persons have set base back for years uh, and have not improved for the most part the base playing of the people that look to them for musical improvement. So I can't associate with it. I don't want any part of it. Is it a specific thing that they're teaching? Or Well, it's, it's everything that they're teaching. It, it's, if you want to learn Spanish, the only way that I know to learn Spanish yeah. is to live in a Spanish neighborhood and watch Spanish TV or go to a teacher and let them teach you the grammar. Yeah. Now people say that, huh? Oh, well, I was going to say most people learn now in isolation in front of YouTube, which is a vast wealth of information. They're not always as fortunate as you to have been gigging your whole life in various bands. Well, certainly. And, and I'll look at the, even the YouTube tube experience as self-taught. It's not a, you know, they go to YouTube and it's free. 
But my point about the Spanish thing is people say that music is a language, but they're not teaching it as a language because they're not teaching the words as an exclusive, 100% exclusive concept. If I may, there's only two ways to learn how to play. Check this out. There's actually three if you combine one and two. One is being self-taught, self-taught, auto, uh, autodidactic, which means is, let's say Jude Gold, he's in, tar in charge entirely of whatever material, whatever music, whatever instruments, whatever sources he goes to, because they're free, they're open for regard, and he can accept or not accept what is being offered to him. He can jam with whom he wants. He can jam in any way that he wishes that he that he wishes to. That's being self-taught. The other way is being taught musical content. It's how violins, violas, cellos, basses, trumpets, trombones, uh, uh, oboes, clarinets, flutes, etc., bassoons, classical piano, classical guitar. The only way that these instruments are taught to this day is by musical content. Now, because practically the entirety of music is taught one of two ways, bass players invented a third way. What is this? Groove, which I think is a terrible lesson element because groove is a result. It isn't a lesson principle. Groove is actually last in the, in the schedule. You got to learn what the notes are. You got to learn how to play them. Once you've learned how to play them, the groove starts to happen. Groove is last and it really doesn't require any instruction. You don't think they are all concurrent and you're not learning groove concurrently with any other element of music, like learning to block with other musicians and speak that untranscribable language of swinging? Well, yes. And look how everyone in the history of bass and practically the history of bass and guitar did it. They all played and learned the untranscribable element of swing. You didn't learn groove I'll bet I'm speaking for you. You'll correct me in a moment. But I'll bet you never learned groove from a teacher as much as whatever teacher you learned from taught you guitar. And so the nature of groove is the nature of performance. And performance is always, without exception, a result of having prepared and practiced and learned ahead of time. That's why I see, in my opinion, base education as... A, as greatly a failure because it includes styles, all kinds of styles, rock music in schools. It includes, uh, 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 wait, this, this other, my mind is going blank. It includes uh, technique, slap lessons, which is all self-taught. All the slappers are self-taught. Even the teachers are self-taught. So I don't see it as a successful endeavor. And that's why I am where I am. Go ahead. I, I, you can play devil's advocate with me. Well, I know. I, this I know. Just thinking, I'm just thinking about I went to music school at Cal Berkeley, you know, California, not Boston, UC Berkeley. And uh, just a four-year kind of undergrad thing. Mm. I don't know if this qualifies. Like, I'm so thankful for all the different styles that I learned. They weren't all, none of them were officially guitar because they don't really have a guitar program there. But, you know, I'm taking jazz and I'm taking African drumming from, you know, like that alone really changed my life, thinking about subdivisions and 12-8 time and bell patterns, all these things. But some of them are styles, I, I would say. Where do you draw the line between style and this pure music learning? Well, consider that, that you took uh, African drumming 
it's another instrument you chose. But as a four-year guitar student, I'm going to guess you were taught musical content as your as an undergrad. Well, yes, all of those things. But like the style is if it's a genre, is it not learning style? Like if I take jazz class from this wonderful teacher named Bill Bell who passed away, piano mm -hmm. player, talk about swinging. Is that learning a style? Or for me, who never grew up, really, I played in the jazz band in high school and stuff, but I'm not really a jazz player, like to me, class. Jazz is uh, one of the rare styles of music that requires knowledge of notes. You can't play jazz without it, whereas you can reasonably play rock and other funk styles by a fair, simple uh, uh, repertoire, which might explain why there's way more rock self-taught rockers and stuff so jazz as a music is a study music is based in harmony it's based in minor seven flat five to to dominant seven flat nine and it's an academic uh, system so absolutely the jazz what you learned i would imagine is jazz music you didn't learn the style of of duke ellington as per se the style of eric dolphy as per se the style of uh, of uh, so and so you may have dabbled uh, they may use some of the songs but i'm you can tell me now if you if you were taught let's say styles over the actual harmony that you use while playing jazz music in school well i think you're right i mean I, but i've definitely got a taste of these styles like sure you know like learning bebop phrasing and and seeing which bebop phrase would make the teacher light up and like you're, like, oh, you're getting it. he had a great line which uh, you should use in your classes he'd be a he'd be walking around the room he's one of those kind of intimidating teachers and a circle of students around him he'd be like <laughs> we're gonna get this jazz feel if it kills you <laughs> not us not me if it kills you guys we're gonna <laughs> Yeah, but even there, look at what you mentioned. You shared uh, learning the bebop lines. This is this this is harmony. These are notes related to tonality. I'll bet they were all eighth notes, so the rhythmically they were fairly predictable. But the but the gist of jazz is harmony. It's melody. The gist of rock, and then the styles that a lot of schools teach is based for employment. A lot of the people will be taught things feeling that, oh, well, then I'll get a job when in fact most won't because people aren't looking for the most part. This is sort of the hard part that the music industry is a closed industry. They don't want anybody in it that's new. It's ironically, musical chairs could not be, couldn't be a better metaphor for the game of musical chairs that kids play. Sure. Like <laughs> only the difference is instead of there being 15 chairs and 16 kids there's like 16 kids in one chair mm -hmm. that well that sort of goes back to a lot of the things that i had that i share that base teachers and schools are upset with me about but i which is based on this there's one chair and 16 guys the music industry does not want most school bass player graduates they're not going to accept them into the industry and a lot of these guys are consigned back to regional gigging that they were doing before they went to music school. So the secret, quite frankly, quite honestly, is if a student works his living son of a gun butt off and becomes such a great player based in the ability as the different styles that you and I played together, that 
an industry, meaning the people that hear this person have to say, man, I, I want to have this guy in my band. I want to have this guy in my session. Uh, it, and it is the, the greatness of the talent. But when you, when one waters down the academic experience by saying, we're going to prepare you with the internet, we're going to prepare you how to communicate, we're going to prepare you how to play funk, we're going to prepare you how to use what amplifier. All of these things are, or most of these things, are self-taught principles. Yeah. Just about all of them. And you're paying, one is paying, for what everybody before the time that music schools decided to teach a student these things, now are employing them as, as money-making uh, endeavors. But I don't see it that it's going to help any of these poor guys. They're going to find out in five years, man, that the, if they had to practice minor major seven in, in 13 to 15 to 17 keys, that was, that was uh, being ironical. That's what's going to get them to play better so that when they self-teach themselves the styles, they are going to be badass son of a guns. No one's going to refuse them. And the issue I have with what you said is nothing. I completely agree. You, yeah, absolutely. The, <laughs> the nuts and bolts, if you can actually do all that stuff. I, I had another music, great music teacher. He'd say, got to learn all the stuff, all the stuff you're talking about. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting at home on Saturday night with a can of beer. Bingo. Or Diamante from Oakland. The, the, the ironic thing is that the kids online, they, they don't want to hear about it. And I say, okay, but for anybody that does, this is what I would suggest in order to do it. If you, one of the arguments is I think that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. People level against you? Yeah. I mean, often when people can't attend or comment about a specific point of music, they'll detour off to another point to regard it's we've seen it with the, with the Trump and Biden and well, what did look what Biden did in 1812 and look what Trump did. You know, yep. it's hard for people to stick on focus. So, um, I forgot what I was saying. Uh, uh, you know, we'll say like, Oh, you think you're right. Oh, they think that I'm right. And I say, but I'm not right in that nothing that I teach or just about in nothing that I teach came from me. I didn't create these things. These are established norms in the broadest sense of all instruments, even worldwide. Yeah. So when, and, and the broadest sense in that the, it's a planetary regard specific, broad education itself is, is, is the end of musical development because you're taking a spoonful of this and a, and a, and a fork full of that. That's not how we get better. We get better by narrow, direct teaching or being taught and by wide, unencumbered, self-taught uh, investigation. Well, cool. I, yeah, I, buddy. I should let you go, but really great talking to you. And it was interesting, you know, like bringing up the Steve Bailey thing. Suddenly I had a little flash like, wait, is, did, was there like a little bit of a heated thing going on between them that I'm kind of vaguely remembering? And I didn't mean to bring that up, but the beautiful thing about it was hearing you talk about how much you've changed and, and like, you know, just... Not that you had to change, but to just to unfold that way and evolve is something that always impresses me with my friends. If they can make huge changes like that. Quitting Mine was out of necessity. I mean, I won't go long in it, but it, it, I actually had bad thoughts. I was in such agony and could not come out of it. It was like a, it was like a high, it was like anxiety at 10 and depression at 15 
and I, I was drinking to go to sleep. I don't drink. Call me. You didn't call me, brother. It wasn't something anyone could help me with. It wasn't. There wasn't. There wasn't anybody that could pull me out of this. And the therapist that I had, coincidentally, was the greatest therapist I ever found. And was she's a, she's a funny kind of combine. She's almost like a hippie chick who had a had a, uh, a, 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 a license to practice psychology and was also spiritually motivated, deeply uh, involved in spiritual things books. She had a, uh, she taught me about the dark night of the soul, um, things that have happened to people that go through spiritual change where sometimes like, it just came right out of the blue. It's like, bang, you're in it. And I spent nine months sobbing nine months i worked i did things then you go back to the hotel or go back to my house or whatever and i just break down again i lost my voice but it was a process to heal so it got me to this place so when you mentioned steve bailey i mean we've had uh, back and forths all the time yeah. um i am uh, very verbal about my views and i try to make them general now i do i used to name names but i tried to make them general about base education but it's it hasn't been pleasant for him and um nevertheless uh it's i'm here where i am and whatever has transpired can i be honest it got me to this place so i'm grateful for everything that happened to have brought me here well fantastic i'm i'm grateful to be here with you and yeah back at you jeff and uh thanks jude yeah whenever my friends make a big spiritual breakthrough or something or it's Oh, it's great. It's great. And uh, let me know if your bass player falls down the stairs and breaks three of his legs, then let me come in and sub for him. He, he is a three-legged guy, so. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's good to know that you, you got the rock back, so. I do. Fantastic. Well, keep it alive to your million five. Such love you, brother. Me too, buddy. I love you very much. You're a lovely man, and you are one hell of a talented musician, so. Sending you best regards, and thank you for inviting me on this. I hope it was a, a good chat. Fantastic. Well, the time is safe.